This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. and everywhere in between, apart from those sections of the city that have been cordoned off and condemned as unlivable, it's Tales of Malifaux, and your host, the man with the voice as smooth as silk, brilliantly white teeth, tall as an enraged rattler, okay, okay, I'll stop, I'll stop, it's the announcer, I start today's programme with a warning from the Guild Office of Public Safety. Our friendly officials would like to remind the public that if they encounter a small, gurgling being that is part machine and part human, their best course of action would be to run quite fast. They tend to travel in packs, so caution is advised at all times. On with today's stories. First of all, I bring you Lost and Found. Lost and Found Alone with the wind and the silent shadows, Malifaux at night was a place to let one's imagination run riot. That was, mused Leviticus as he limped through the deserted streets, not a good idea. In Malifaux it was not unknown for men's imaginations to come to life and eat them. Still, he was not such easy pickings as he might appear, and in his limp was the authority of a veteran guardsman on his rounds, or of a battle-worn king walking his camp on the eve of battle. He soon arrived at the Guild Enclave, where the buildings rose higher than all others. They cast long shadows, so that even in the day the roads were draped in darkness. The seat of the guild's power, this section was in the best repair of any district in the city. Here stood the governor-general's mansion and the guild's various offices. Here was where privilege resided, vacationing in this alien world. The thought of vacationing in this city made Leviticus laugh, but the governor-general was careful to shelter his influential visitors from the more unseemly elements of this world. His destination in sight, Leviticus entered the offices of Madame Crid, as chief officer of the guild's witch-hunter task force. Madame Crid had no qualms about turning the techniques of her prey against them. Her quarters were filled with all manner of mystic devices, some bubbling, others spinning, a great many glowing, crackling, or sparking. Of all the guild officers, save for those of the governor-general himself, the witch-hunters were the largest. Its chambers were filled or so was popular belief, with the various arcane monstrosities perpetrated by the arcanist threat, all these blasphemous magics under intense study. It was even rumored that deep below the witch-hunter offices was the dungeon where these criminals were imprisoned, a dungeon connected to an ancient catacomb beneath the city. Sonia Crid was hunched over what looked like a miniature astrolabe, and Leviticus walked slowly toward her, making sure his cane clacked loudly against the tiled floor. Turning, she exhaled a lungful of pungent smoke. You're late. She ground her cigarette against one of the spheres of the astrolabe, leaving a burnt circle on its polished surface. Would it kill you to get a cab? No. I tried. Leviticus waved away Sonia Crid's perplexed frown. I like walking at night. You meet all sorts of interesting people at night. Really? I prefer to meet interesting people with all the lights on and a gun in my hand. What news of that woman and her blade? Leviticus gave a stiff but respectful bow. Victoria has arrived. Your source was correct. She carries with her an oriental blade and a cherry wood scabbard. 
I was not able to inspect the blade, but the dimensions match the description you gave. I believe it to be the Masamune. Alice is currently following her. Smiling widely, she slapped Leviticus roughly on his shoulder, so that he almost toppled over. Your little poppet is keeping an eye on my priceless artifact, is she? You'd best not lose my sword, Leviticus. He straightened his back, standing at his full height. He let his irritation show for a moment and then quieted his gaze when Crid got the message. He was a powerful ally, but it did not hurt to occasionally remind her that so was he. She is capable. Tell me, Sonia, what is your interest in the blade? I know you well enough to realize it's not historical relics that concern you. Come, let me show you. If anyone can appreciate my curiosity, it would be you. Sonia navigated the labyrinthine passages of the witch hunter's stronghold, Leviticus finding it difficult to keep pace. The old injury in his leg, the one that never quite healed, had flared up at the unseasonably cold weather. He managed, though, gritting his teeth and bearing the old familiar pain like a friend, and soon the pair arrived at a locked chamber. It was a large steel door with several iron bars sealing it. Withdrawing a ring of keys, Madame Crid addressed each lock in turn before drawing a lever to open the door. Inside the windowless chamber was a writing desk, with a large map unfurled across its surface. The walls were decorated with a dozen beautifully inked scrolls. Leviticus entered and took out a pair of reading glasses from within his coat. The scrolls were large, a meter in width, and as tall as a man. Each held an individual scene of intricate artistry and was filled with exotic foreign characters. He looked at Madame Crid. These are Nippon logographs, he said in surprise. Tugging off his silk glove as she moved to Leviticus' side, she touched the crisp paper of the scroll. Correct. They were found by the Ortegas being transported by gremlins in the swamp. Gremlins? They're barely self-aware, and they are inherently destructive. What interest could they possibly have in these? But more importantly, how did they acquire them? Sonia smiled knowingly, studying the characters inked on the scroll before her. And now you understand my curiosity, Leviticus. Can you read them? Leviticus shook his head. No. I've never learned the Nippon language. These scrolls tell the story of a desperate prefect whose province was plagued by a demon. His lord had become possessed and led his army to raise the countryside. With no place left to go, this prefect journeyed into the mountains to pray. There he came upon a small school, and the master of that school, that master, according to the writing of these scrolls, was the legendary swordsmith Masamuni. Masamuni gifted this man with a blade. Armed, the prefect returned to his lands, sought out his lord, and struck him with a sword. As Sonia spoke, Leviticus realized the events of the story were recorded in the images in the scrolls. He saw the prefect confronting the lord. The demon appeared as a bright red aura that surrounded him. The sword swept through the lord's body, but he was unharmed. The demon, however, was cut down the middle and defeated. The final scroll showed the sword being enshrined. Sonia traced the final character. This represents unending peace and prosperity. Perhaps that peace came to a close because the sword was taken. As we both know, all of Masamune's blades are lost. But you believe one of them has been found? Leviticus asked. You believe the blade of this woman you had me follow tonight is the same blade described in this tale? I do. And I think I'm not the only one. But my theory extends further, Sonia said, grasping her hands behind her back and pacing around the room. I believe these scrolls arrived in Malifaux with the first governor general in that time before the breach was sealed against us. I believe that a never-born creature captured these scrolls and was somehow able to decipher their language. These creatures have displayed varying amounts of intelligence, and there are a great many devices and magics that exist in this city that we have not been able to divine the purpose for. 
Leviticus interjected before Sonny could get too far from her point. And you believe that whatever creature translated these scrolls has reached the same conclusion you have regarding Victoria's sword and has contacted her, summoning her to this place. All for the Masamune? He could see her sizing him up, choosing her words carefully. That is what I believe. Not quite sure if he shared her certainty. Leviticus examined the scrolls a second time. The only Masamune in the world was not something that would simply allow itself to be found, not without cause, and not by just anyone. Why here? Why now? Why Victoria? It seemed the population of interesting people in Malifaux had just gained a significant new member. After several minutes of silence, he turned his eyes to Sonia. You could have told me this before I sent my Alice after that woman. Sonia laughed softly in surprise and shook her head. You did say your puppet was capable of etiquette. fatter of the two moons hung low and large in the sky over Ridley Station, where Malifaux Station was built to boast of the Guild's triumph over a dark frontier. Ridley Station was far more utilitarian, though no less impressive. Heavy machinery with fearsome mechanical arms hunched over the railcars behind the engine, plucking them from track to marshalling yard and back again like a child with his toys. Another class of machine, connected to giant silos alongside the tracks, filled the cars with a freshly mined ore that would be processed elsewhere to extract the valuable soulstone. Had it been raining coal scuttles, Rasputina did not think the din could have been any greater. She, like everyone in the modern age, had heard of soulstone. Like all but the very richest, she had never possessed one. These gems were said to have mystical properties, and were single-handedly responsible for bringing about the second age of magic on Earth. According to Guild reports, only 10% of the ore mined in Malifaux contained soulstone crystal. Of that 10%, only a very small fraction was of suitable size and purity for sorcery. The remainder was used for alchemy, enchantment, charm-making, and even perfume which claimed to magically ensnare anyone the wearer desired. 
that was very popular among New World debutantes, Rasputina had heard. She had no idea what a debutante was, but was fairly sure she would despise them. Ma'am, the coachman bowed deeply, your wagon is ready. Misha, Rasputina called. Then the cat-like creature at her feet leaped through the wagon door and made itself comfortable on the padded bench. Rasputina followed, and the coachman closed the door behind her. He leaned on the sill after turning the latch. As I said before, miss, we only go so far as the Delta Six site. Beyond that, then the terrain is far too marshy for the horses to continue. He glanced at her spotless fur-trimmed cape. You won't find much but swamp and worse past there. I understand. I've already made arrangements to meet with a wilderness guide and a marsh boat at Delta Six. Your service to that site will be sufficient. As you say, miss, we depart presently. The coachman climbed aboard his stoop, and with a lash of the reins, the small wagon was underway. Rasputina held Philip Tuma's journal tight in her lap, but it was the strange scenery of this world that fixed her attention. Back on earth, the stunted woods, smoke-burnt skies, and ash-laden fields would have been an unrelenting grimness of grey, but here the landscape was shot through with vivid streaks of bold colour, arresting spackles and startling swathes from some defiant painter's brush. For a fanciful moment, Rasputina imagined the countryside fighting back against these foreign interlopers and their dark and furious mills, and the thought warmed her. She had been brought to this land in chains. For a crime so terrible, she could not speak of it even in her own defense. Those chains had been real enough, but she had brought others with her, ones her mind had forged for her, out of a guilt no mother could ever escape. Those chains had been no less real to her. She thought she deserved her fate, and without the power or desire to fight back, had suffered greatly and for a long time. But then he had found her. He had shown her the power of winter and what she could one day accomplish with it. He had given her the strength and the will to fight back, and so she had. But she was painfully aware that whatever he was, he would exact a price for his assistance. Nothing in this world was ever free. As Ridley Station was left behind, the knotted, writhing trees closed in around the little coach. The canopy of sparse leaves and skeletal branches blocked the glow of the moon, and leaning out of the window, Rasputina saw that only the coachman's lantern provided any light to guide them down the narrow track. The rhythmic vibrations of the coach and the shadows that danced around her had a soothing effect, and Rasputina soon fell asleep. She dreamed of snowy peaks that rose over mines far below. A tribe of gaunt people lived there in her dream. They wore cloaks and furs, and beneath a steel sky they danced around a great effigy. Made of wood and stone, the effigy had hollow eyes and a wide open mouth. The giant pointed teeth within came from the tusk of many sacrificed mountain creatures. The tribe's people chanted as they danced. The same strange word again and again in voices that were harsh and alien. Rasputina did not recognize the word, could not pronounce it, even in the strangeness of the dream. But she knew the effigy by a different name. December. She woke with a start, and with Misha, her hawkat companion, pouring at her arm. The coach lurched from the path and then jerked to a halt as the horses reared with fright. There was a scream of terror, and Rasputina leaned out of the window of her carriage just in time to see the coachman knock to the ground. He had barely landed when a flock of child-sized creatures swarmed him out of the darkness. Glints of talons and sharp teeth in the wildly swinging lantern light were joined by dark red blossoms, as the man's body was torn asunder before his initial scream had time to fade. Rasputina fumbled at the latch to escape, but the mechanism refused to budge. Panicking, she kicked hard and the door flew open. At the same moment, something struck the wagon so hard it felt as if a train had plowed into it. 
The world revolved, and the air filled with splinters and dust as Rasputina was hurled clear from the destruction. Either the initial blow or the landing against the roots of a tree wrapped iron serpents round her lungs as she gasped for breath. She tasted blood in her mouth as she tried to rise, legs suddenly weak as water. Where the wagon had been, there was now a sight that had her wondering if the blow had robbed her of her wits as well as her breath. The lantern had shattered, and oil burned fiercely in the dry brush. Towering over the wreckage, black before the orange fire, was a giant monstrosity, a creature born from hell. With great horns upon its head, cloven hooves that trampled the timbers, and huge wings that fanned the flames. The creature snarled at her and advanced, the bulk of its body casting a dark shadow over her. It was not the creature that spoke, however, but a soft, seductive voice from the darkness, as if the dry leaves themselves spoke. Even dazed, Rasputina knew instantly who it was. You were sweet not to die on me before I had the chance to kill you myself. It was Lilith, one of the leaders of the Neverborn, although Rasputina still could not see her. The creature hunkered down over Rasputina as she willed strength back into her battered body. She could feel the hot blast of its breath spill over her, and she gagged at the noxious scent of decay. Black lips drew back over jagged teeth in a mockery of a smile just inches from Rasputina's face, and she suddenly thought of Misha toying with a mouse. But this mouse had teeth of her own. Rasputina's hand lay on a large splinter of wood. I've learned to take my chances, she replied. She struck deftly plunging the wooden snake into the eye of the beast. A gory geyser of fluids erupted and the beast staggered back, clutching its ruined face in agony. A cold wind sprang up, fanning the flames of the lantern's spilled fire so it swelled into an inferno that engulfed the trees. Rasputina found her feet and ran. The wind was with her, and in it was the chill of winter. The wind was her weapon, a scythe to cut through the bones of men and freeze their spirits. The wind steadily grew in power, becoming a ghostly howl that whistled through the trees. Amidst the howl, the seductive voice laughed softly. Winter is coming, but not in time to save you. The white veil of snow will not hide you from me. This is my land, my soil, my trees. This time, you will die. Rasputina stumbled through the black woods. Lilith, I am nothing to you. It is him you want. Lilith's tone turned quickly to rage, her voice coming in the rattling of the branches overhead. He is with you. He is in you. He will watch you die, and I will savor the ruin of all his plans. I am my own. You are his. Lilith's voice came as booming thunder from the boles of the dark trees all around, surging on the growing wind. Let him know he can cheat death no longer. I have found a way to kill him. Tell him. Tell him with your last breath. The fire that burned behind Rasputina was lost now. And she ran in darkness, with only blind luck and instinct keeping her from snapping an ankle on a root or her neck on a branch. Just a moment longer, she knew, and winter would arrive, and she would have the power to turn and stand against Lilith. Lilith struck. She flung out of the darkness, her heavy sword held overhead. Rasputina heard only the sound of her war cry before the pommel of Lilith's sword struck her on the head. The force of the strike combined with Rasputina's own momentum to knock her out cold her body falling to the ground before Lilith like a ragdoll. The wind that was building died, and the forest fell silent.
is still more to come from Band of Heroes, Mercenaries and Ne'er-Do-Wells as they venture further into this strange alien world. Lasting bonds will be made, friendships will be broken, blood will be spilt. Sadly, I'd be confident waging that that last one is very likely to happen. As sure as I am in seeing you, loyal listener, again next week for more Tales of Malifaux. Do stay safe out there. After all, bad things happen. Yeah.